Welcome to the second season of the PEBC podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I will be hosting our series on phenomenal teaching. In season two, we will take a deeper dive into how the strands of the PEBC teaching framework of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding for each and every student. I'm honored to share these conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers with you. Thank you so much for listening in. Lester Lamanac is a lifelong educator who has written many books for teachers and students. He believes in the power of stories and the importance of each and every learner having a voice and the opportunity to connect with texts. You might know him through his contributions to Writer's Workshop, Getting Through the Hard Parts and They're All Hard, Reading to Make a Difference, or Writers Are Readers. Or perhaps you have shared his words with others via Saturdays and Tea Cakes or Snow Day. Lester helps answer the question, how do we teach for agency, equity, and understanding as we explore how reading aloud might be the structure that helps us all return to the classroom? Lester, welcome to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast today. It is a great pleasure and honor to have you as a guest. Thank you. It's really good to be with you. I'm really excited today to dive into really the power of reading aloud to children and the way in which it really shapes classroom environment and learning. So my first thing I thought we might think about today is, does reading aloud matter more now than ever before? I don't know that it matters more, but it certainly matters as much. Um, reading aloud has always mattered. And I think perhaps it may feel like it matters more because we have come to understand just how powerful it is. And perhaps in previous generations, people read aloud to us simply because it was a way to help pass the day and we saw the power of a story without understanding its real potential. When I was a student in elementary school in the 1960s, our teachers had us in the classroom all day long. We never left. We had a teacher. You had a fifth grade teacher. You had a third grade teacher. You had a first grade teacher. You didn't have a music teacher and an art teacher. You didn't have a PE teacher. You had a teacher. And so I as assume that some of the reading aloud they did was to provide a transition in the day and to carry a story forward. And it was following a tradition of just sharing stories. And I get that. I, I can imagine there are times when you've been doing everything all day long and your brain needs a break and you sit down and share a story. Today, I think we understand far more about the power of reading aloud to students and the idea that it is a way to sort of escort them into the world of story and to understand the cadence and the rhythm and the shifts and intonations and, and why story matters. So I think that is so important to think about kind of those historical origins of stories and the ways in which reading aloud has played out across generations and across classrooms and schools and different geographic areas, I'm thinking a lot about some of the benefits of reading aloud. And you mentioned, you know, we have, we know so much more now than we have ever before. So what are some of those benefits that accompany reading aloud, if you will? 
Well, there is a certain rhythm to reading. Um, and sometimes I think <clears throat> people uh, get caught up in over-focusing on the, the process of decoding and getting the words right. And um, without understanding that the nuance of meaning requires attention to the flow of language and how the language works. And written language doesn't always match the way people talk about things and the conversations that they have. And children who are coming from places where they're not read to don't have their ear attuned to the flow of story or to the rhythm and the cadence of nonfiction writing. Children who are read to a lot understand the, the turn in a story. They understand the rising tension. They understand um, the shift in, in the, the reader's voice, the grandparent, the parent, the caregiver, the big brother, sister, neighbor, whoever is reading to them. The idea that that person actually shifts the way they speak, the way they use their voice, they become a different voice for a different character, or their voice drops an octave when something's getting scary, or they slow down in those places where the tension is building, uh, and they get dramatic. And we probably don't do that as much when we're having daily conversations, and our language tends to be more functional about, you know, put those in the drawer, pick that up, is that where your toys belong? If I find them there again, you're not going to have them. I said, put them in your toy box. If that's your language interaction throughout your childhood and then you come to school and now you're living in the world where um, much of your language interaction is the language of stories and the language of print, whether it's information or feature articles or poetry or whatever it is, the idea that someone reads aloud to you actually helps your ear arrest that rhythm. And um, in a book I wrote once with Reba Wadsworth called Learning Under the Influence of Language and Literature, one of the things we said in that book is that your ear has to arrest that rhythm before your mouth can echo it. And your mouth mm. has to echo it before your mouth can, I mean, before your hands can actually play it out as a writer. Your mouth has to echo it. You have to be able to say it. And when you read, you can't replicate those rhythms and that shift in intonation if someone has not read aloud to you and set a model for this is how it might sound. So I think the power of that is that it actually provides for us the way that language sounds and the notion that how it sounds, the music of that language, is one of the ways we attend to nuance in a story. So when you're shifting, if you're reading aloud, the kid may miss the notion, if they're reading on their own, that the character is being snarky, that this is not real. The kid's not really meaning this. They're just making a snarky remark. It's not literal. If someone is reading aloud to the kid and they shift their tone of voice and they do something with their eyes or they change their facial expression, the listener knows that that character is not being serious because they've heard that sort of speech before when someone's being snarky at home or in their community. And if you don't hear that when someone's reading aloud to you, then you don't know that those things are signals in the language that when you're reading yourself. So I think that's really interesting when you think about, you know, the two things you just mentioned are clearly language development in terms of 
that listening channel, being able to listen to language, then being able to replicate it verbally, but also being able to replicate some of those patterns in our writing. And then that idea of co-construction of meaning, that reading aloud isn't just about getting all the words right. It isn't only about phonics and decoding. So I think about those two kind of almost intellectual or academic exercises that are related to reading aloud that, that happen for children. And I'm thinking about young children as well as adolescents. That importance of hearing language and hearing written language is so different than conversational language. I'm wondering also, though, about what are some of kind of the emotional or social emotional benefits of reading aloud? Well, when I think about social and emotional um, work, I think about kids um, having opportunities to recognize in story or in information text something about themselves that perhaps they're struggling with, something that, you know, perhaps they believe I'm the only person who is this weird, or no one in the world has to cope with stuff like I cope with at home. I can't tell anybody because everybody else has a normal life. And the idea that we can read aloud from texts that open the world to us and provide for us an opportunity to see something that mirrors a piece of ourselves or opens a vista for us to see the world in a way we have not conceived of it before provides us a chance to look at how others have marched that march and look at a trail. It may not be my trail, but it is a trail. And it is this validation that someone else has actually thought these thoughts or felt these feelings or experienced these problems before me, and they found a way through it. And I think what that does is to provide you with this notion that with almost anything in the world, you know, there is some story that can help you grow beyond it and live through it and see the other side of it. Um, the work of Reading Sims Bishop um, from several years ago about text as mirrors, windows, and doors um, was addressing the notion that we simply didn't have the body of literature <clears throat> in place that would allow black, black and brown children to see themselves represented in text. And that we need to be able to see a reflection of ourselves, that we need to know that who we are is valued. And if we're not represented in text, then the message pretty explicitly is that people like you don't matter. And so I think we have to make sure when we're thinking about the social emotional level, we have to think, make sure that what we have in our libraries validates your existence that says you are a worthy person and you have a place here. And there are people like you in the, in the world, but also just in literature, that the people who are choosing books and the people who are making books available to you recognize you exist and value your place here. I think that's so interesting because when you think about our classroom libraries or you think about you know the, the collections in schools, this opportunity that we have for students to 
not only see themselves in text, but to understand others through text. Mm-hmm. I think it can develop great compassion and empathy, I think internally and externally can really support this idea of understanding and understanding other cultures and others as well as ourselves. And I think that's so important to point out that that reading aloud not only has these these benefits for language development and literacy development, but also the social awareness and understanding that we can cultivate through reading aloud as well. And I think also if we would be remiss if we didn't mention just the joy and pleasure. Yeah. That aesthetic experience that is, you know, when someone reads aloud to you, that, that personal connection, which really gets me thinking about kind of where we are in time right now. You know, it's January of 2021 and many classrooms are reopening. Many children are returning to the classroom for the first time in 10 months. And some of our younger children are heading into the classroom for the first time in their lives that this kind of notion of school is just starting up. And so I'm curious if we can talk a little bit about in what ways do you think reading aloud may be critical to the reintroduction or the introduction to learning and breathing in real classrooms, in face-to-face learning? What's What could be the kind of the role of read aloud or the benefits of read aloud as children and teachers and adolescents all return to the schoolhouse, if you will. Okay, there's a lot rolled into that question. I know. I like to ask uh, a big one, Lester. <laughs> so we were um, we were playing with the social emotional piece, and then rolling into like reentry to school, which kind of is all related. You know, That's the, what I'm thinking. The idea that um, as we enter school and come back in, one of the things we have to establish. Um, especially for students who have not been face-to-face, who've done their year all virtually. They see each other on screen, but you know, they don't really know each other. They haven't had to negotiate workspace or routines or share materials or make space for each other to enter and exit conversations, to listen and respond because it's been controlled by who can choose to mute and unmute your microphone. And so now for me to be able to listen and then extend what you're saying, and I think very, you know, I I have a particular interest in in this regarding our um, youngest children, those in preschool, um, because their whole experience with school, you know, you think about them being two and a half and three and three and a half and working up to four and their parents saying things like, you know, you know, when this happens, when August comes, you go to big school, you know, you won't go to the sunshine daycare anymore. You're going to go to big school. And the kid has this excitement and anticipation about big school and big school (laughs) turns out to be, I sit down at this particular table in my house and I get on the computer and that's big school. They've missed the idea of structures and routines and establishing the norms of a classroom community. And I think the power of a story, um, and not just a story, but the ritual of sharing story, And choosing those stories carefully, I think it matters how we choose books and which books we choose for which time of day. But if we did something as simple as our opening 
of the day routine was to read a story. And the focus of that story was to explore the notion of community, how we make friends, how we move together in a group. Um, we establish the idea of a structure that says, this is how our day starts. And as soon as that story finishes, we move into something, whether it's your literacy block or math instruction or whatever that first thing is. The story is the sort of like the front porch that you sort of move gradually into the space where you're going to be a little more formal and do something inside. You're having that gathering and acclimating from the outside to the inside. And the story brings you in. And then if you think, if we'll carry that house analogy a little further. I love this, yes. If you think about moving from room to room, you cross through either an archway or a door. So there's a threshold. And throughout the day, if we had a read aloud, that was the threshold you crossed from the literacy block into math, from math into lunch, from lunch into science from science into specials, music, art, from that into PE outside or in the gym. If each one of those transitions was some sort of read aloud, and perhaps it's not a chapter of an entire, of a chapter book, perhaps it's not a whole picture book. Perhaps there's a poem, the same poem that we read every day, all year long, just before we go to music. That's our going to music poem. And then perhaps the first thing every morning, we're reading an entire picture book. And perhaps the last, you know, right after lunch, we read a chapter of a chapter book. There is a routine to it. Very much like um, Fred Rogers. Um, You think about Mr. Rogers moving from the living room with you, bringing you into the kitchen. When you went into the kitchen with Mr. Rogers, you were going because you needed the flat table, the large service to do something. And usually that was an art project or some sort of science experience. And you needed the water or bowls or supplies that were available in the kitchen or you needed the large flat surface. And part of the transition of moving from the living room into the kitchen was this slow down pause in the hallway where he talked to you about what you were going to do next, but you also fed the fish. Mm-hmm. And the feeding of the fish was this sort of nonverbal transition between one thing and another. And instead of me saying, it's time for music, I read the music poem. Instead of me saying, you know, it's now time for us to come back from lunch and transition back into class, I read a chapter from the chapter book. Pretty soon, those structures and routines take on their own significance without having some of those transitions so difficult. And transitions, um, as we all know, if you've taught more than five minutes, you know, transitions can be a place where you just lose time that you you can't even, you know, like, where did that time go? You know, this took 15 minutes. I mean, what happened? How did I lose this amount of time? You people have to get better at putting your things away. <laughs> and, you know, then I, and you watch people like, a flight tower control people trying to direct all the planes coming in and it can just get frustrating. And then there are other people who are just so beautifully smooth at it. And when I, when I watch those teachers who just make it happen seamlessly, it 
it appears that they have just a, a routine to something, some structure in place. And I believe that a read aloud activity can be one of those things. Well, it's really interesting also to think about what you've described in relation to some of the social and emotional learning work. I recently had a conversation with Dr. Andra Brill, and we were talking a lot about you know, students who've experienced a lot of trauma or a lot of stress. And what she recommended is that every student, but particularly those students who've experienced stress and trauma, need relationships, relevancy, routines, and reflection. And when I think about what you just shared with us, all four of those goals are met because we establish relationships through characters, <coughs> through listening, through having that proximity with our with our classmates and our friends. We think about the relevancy and the text that we choose. We think about the routine that you just mentioned and how much that provides that structure and that comfort and those smooth transitions. And then I also think about reflection and what you said earlier as you know, reading aloud and listening or experiencing any type of story or nonfiction really is an opportunity for reflection mm -hmm. because they are those windows and those doors and those mirrors. And so cognitively we are reflecting regardless of how old we are. We're having that opportunity to really think about that content. So one thing I'm wondering about is how can we ensure that our read aloud has an impact? Because what we've talked about today are, you know, the benefits of reading aloud, the opportunity to think about story and nonfiction as those transitions, you know, those thresholds, as you mentioned, from one part of our day to the next. But I think in order for that type of work to have an impact, we have to be really thoughtful. So what are your recommendations? How do I ensure that my stories or my read aloud or that poem that I choose or that snippet of nonfiction has that impact? Um, I think that comes down to one simple thing, and that's intention. Mm. And, and I think we can't overstate the importance of attention. Not attention, but intention. And if we would stop and consider before we read something aloud, um, you know, and in days past, and, and previous generations. Um, you know, I remember when I first started teaching in 1977, I taught first grade and I did not have a very large classroom library. And we had a, a good um, central library in the school, but you could only check out so many books and I didn't have a large classroom library. So when kids got a book as a gift or just picked it up at, you know, a store um, and brought it in. I read it. I read things like Strawberry Shortcake that I would not read today, but I read it because it was a text that we had. And I read it, you know, because it was my read aloud time. And mm -hmm. what I realized is there's so much more power and impact in the experience itself. If what you're choosing is done with the same type of intention that you apply when you're preparing a math lesson and you're choosing manipulatives. You sit down and go, what are my intentions here? At the end of this lesson, I want children to be able to do X. Therefore, I need these materials to demonstrate that and these materials for children to explore. 
So you not only plan the lesson, the objectives, and your methodology, and but you also go through, why do I need these materials for this lesson? How many times will we need to experience this for it to take? How many different ways can I approach this? We do the same thing in planning for science experiments. Uh, it's something as simple as, you know, sort of classic planting a bean in a milk carton and, <laughs> and watching it sprout. You know, somebody has to sit in and plan. I need this many milk cartons. I need this much potting soil. I need this many beans. There is an intention behind it that, that governs how you plan things. Our read-alouds have to be governed by that. So if I know that my morning ritual of opening the classroom that that read aloud is devoted to the concept of building community, I select books that contribute to that intention. If I know that my transition from lunch to science is devoted to building vocabulary, helping to establish concepts, providing children an opportunity to develop an image bank so that I make the content of science more accessible, then I would choose the nonfiction I read in that slot based on the science unit that I'm either teaching or the one that's coming up so that I'm investing the time of the read aloud into building that vocabulary. So when I step into that science unit, you already have those words familiar to your ear. You've got some of those concepts beginning to emerge and you have some images in your head so that when we touch those topics, And someone says, oh, that's like that book you read. And I can touch that book now. And I can say, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking, what's the page where the roots go down under the ground? I open the book to that spread. And I say, are you thinking of this? Now, every kid in the room is seeing the exact same image. And so when I explain something, I know that I'm touching the same image rather than wondering, what are you seeing inside your head? There's this lovely older story uh, called Fish's Fish by Leo Leone, where the frog goes off and uh, leaves the pond as they develop and mature and become, move from being a tadpole and a minnow into becoming a frog and a fish. And the frog goes off and explores the world and comes back. And his friend, the fish, is so excited. And they begin having conversations about what did you see when you left the pond? Everything the frog describes you would see in your head as that, a bird, a cow, people. But the fish sees all of those things with the fish's body and the attributes of wings and feathers. And But they're seeing it through the lenses of a fish. And I think sometimes without having taken the time the, and to be intentional about what we read, to build up the concepts, to share an image bank, to develop that vocabulary, we run the risk that what children see in their heads is an alternate representation of what we're after. And if we asked them, if we had asked the fish in that story, do you understand? The fish would say, yes, absolutely. So you, you know what a bird is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they would give you back the words you gave them but they wouldn't have the image. And so I think sometimes um, even with older students, like middle school kids and high school kids, picture books are essential for that very purpose. If you were working with older kids to study um, and read around the Holocaust, I would put together a stack of picture books 
to make sure that the images they are developing in their heads as they visualize from the novels and the nonfiction that they're reading around that time period have some anchor in something real that is a depiction of what they're seeing done that is historically accurate. And so that read aloud would make that make sense. So I think the intention behind everything makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. And I, I just so interesting to think about the ways in which we can develop and activate schema so that students can access that image bank, mm-hmm. regardless if it's fiction or nonfiction. I really appreciate the, the secondary examples as well, because I don't think we always take the time or find the time to be able to read aloud or to share literature with some of our adolescents. And as, as you just shared, it can be so impactful, especially as a grounding or a community building experience around a topic and having yeah. that common schema. I, um, since you mentioned that, I just want to throw this in here. Um, I think sometimes people of older teachers of older students are not reading aloud because culturally we assume this is something you do for children when they can't yet read. Mm-hmm. So you have to read to them because they can't read it for themselves. But everyone enjoys hearing something read aloud. If that were not true, the audiobook market would flop. <laughs> exactly. And it, it is thriving. How many people do you know and I know who have PhDs and thrive, love audiobooks? And it's not that they can't read. It's like they love hearing that language and hearing the story unfold and hearing the nuance in someone else's voice and realizing, wow, if I had read that myself, I might not have put the emphasis right there. Or perhaps I might have read that paragraph twice before I kind of said, oh, she's, you know, like not, she's being very insincere here. This is not what I thought it was. I go back and read it again. And I think that shift makes that different. And um, I, you know, if I were in charge of the world, which I'm not, but, you know, we have a new secretary of education. And a whole new administration going in. So maybe we have a new day dawning. I would love to see middle schools and high schools have sections of their libraries devoted to picture books alongside material, not separated out, they're just, but just mixed in. If you find a book on World War II, mixed into all the history stuff, there are some picture books. And if you have some text on you know, the civil rights movement, here's some picture books that kind of go alongside that. Because I think our young people can't visualize what they don't have concepts for. And so no matter how good they are at recalling the words and saying them back, they may not have a true understanding because they can't visualize what they're looking for. Lester, you have really opened up, I think, a lot of opportunities for teachers to think about the power of read aloud, the impact of read aloud, the intention behind reading aloud with with those intentions to really support students as people and as learners. As we wrap up today, is there anything else you'd like to add or is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience that can maybe build up their efficacy or bolster their own agency as they maybe begin to make some shifts in their own read aloud practices? Oh, wow. Um, I think one thing would be just let yourself go. And, uh, 
step inside the book mm. and, and be the book. You know, read the book aloud, rehearse it the way you would if you were going to give a presentation at a conference. Think through where is the place that I really need to slow down because this is dense text and the kids may get lost. You know, where are the places where I need to sound excited? Where do I need to sound mournful? Rehearse the text and become um, in the role of a storyteller. Be a person who delivers the story, not just says the words, so that you literally shift between a character's voice, not just change. I don't mean changing your voice and trying to talk like Mother Bear. I mean, when that character's talking, are they old? Are they young? Are they angry? Are they frightened? Are they excited? And that would be very different from the voice of the narrator who is shifting back and forth. And for the kid to recognize that when you're reading aloud, you literally make a shift between what the narrator lets us know, which is usually another set of emotions than what the characters are doing. And I believe that just takes time. And, and some people think, oh, you know, I'm a great reader. Well, but to read aloud, you have to rehearse those things so that you can help bring them. And, you know, I, I don't know that this is true and I don't have any way of proving it. But I do believe that what children hear in their heads when they read silently may mirror what they do when they read aloud. And so where are the models of what it should sound like and how you might shift, you know, but a, with a mystery versus a piece of humor or how a nonfiction directional text would sound different from a nonfiction narrative text that's written more like prose or even poetry. How would those things shift? And I think that just takes practice and trying it out. Lester, thank you so much. And I, I love that idea of just jump into the book and try it out. And in a way, be a little bit fearless and practice, think through what that might sound like. Thank you. Those are just so supportive and steps that I think everyone can take. I want to thank you so much today. And as we close our conversation, last, last question, what are your hopes for the remainder of the school year? Oh, geez. I have so many. Um, my prime, the most important one is that we remain healthy and safe in all that we do. And I know that our communities are experiencing tremendous pressure to get us back in classrooms. And I don't know a single teacher who doesn't want to be with their children. But I'm hoping that every decision that is made in school districts around this country in the coming months is made with one criteria in mind, and that is simply, will this be good for children? Not, will this be good for the economy? Will this help the business community? Will this relieve the tension on parents? But will this be good for children? And if the answer is, I'm not sure, then don't do it. You know, like we should not be sending children and teachers into situations that we would not want to go into ourselves. And for any reason. So I am hoping that we remain safe and smart and get back together as soon as possible. And we simply pick up where we left off and forget this notion of did we lose something 
hell, the whole world has lost something. So, you know, we've lost the economy. We've lost agency. We've lost a whole lot. And so at this point, let it go. We are where we are and we will carry forward as is the rest of the world right now. And school should be no different in that respect. Lester, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Wardhofer. We now provide customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and digital courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.